Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 219. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. I've ever done. This one is the most vital to where your soul ends up when your life on earth is over. If you turn this off before you hear the entire interview, I can promise you that if you aren't saved when you die, then the demons will constantly remind you of this for all eternity. You might want to sit down for this one. I'm going to stop asking you for gifts to support this show and begin asking you to help me get more listeners to the Cantankerous Catholic. It won't cost you anything except a few minutes of your time. The more reviews the Cantankerous Catholic gets, the more often it's displayed by the podcast aggregators when people are looking for new podcasts. 
Occasionally, this might cause the cantankerous Catholic to get attention from Podcast Magazine, the industry's trade magazine. So click on the link in my show notes that says, Rank and Review the Cantankerous Catholic so more Catholics can join us. Then write a short review. Doesn't cost you anything and doesn't make me anything. It just gets more listeners for the cantankerous Catholic and makes the USCCB live it. That's a good thing. About two months ago, my friend Joe Matt, the publisher at The Wonder, referred today's guest to me, and I think it's the best favor Joe has ever done for me. Our guest is a convert named Matthew Pleasy from Chicago. Frankly, I expected this to be a 20-minute interview, but I got a whole lot more than I bargained for. I've been teaching the Catholic faith for 35 years, and I've been a consecrated member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate for well over 20 years, so it's very seldom that I learn something new. Well, Matthew taught me a lot of new things in this interview. And the things he talks about here will stun even the best educated and devout Catholics. Matthew's interview is so long and so important that after the interview, we're only going to have Bishop Joseph Strickland's The Sacred Heart Wins segment before we close this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Six-Pack Warriors, this week we have Matthew Pleasy with us. Professionally, Matthew's a CPA as well as a catechist in Chicago. More importantly, he's also a Third Order Dominican. Finally, Matthew has an organization called CatechismClass.com that we may talk about later. I asked Matthew to come on the show because over the last two years, he's published two books that I think everyone should read, especially during this Lenten season. Matthew, welcome to the Cantankerous Catholic. We're happy to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I think we're going to have a little bit of fun. You know, Chicago is a barren wasteland, so <laughs> <laughs> so so I guess you're a light in the middle of the dark desert. The first thing I think we ought to do, six pack warriors and I'm sure that the vast majority of them have never heard of you. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell Six Pack Warriors a bit about yourself. Sure, happy to. So I am a Catholic writer, catechist, in addition to being a CPA. Or I really run a, a CPA practice kind of focused on helping Catholics, Catholic nonprofits, Catholic business owners, and individuals. But in addition to that, for 15 years, I've, I've been writing for different Catholic publications. I write for the blog, a Catholic life, uh, dot blogspot.com. I've done that since I was a catechumen, um, back in 2004. Um, been doing that, like I said, for about 15 years. I also write for the Fatima Center. Uh, Catholic Family News, uh, One Peter Five, Latin Mass Magazine, um, you know, various different publications. So I've been doing that for a number of years to try to spread the faith. I've been the president of catechismclass.com since 2010 as a means to really make available the best online Catholic religious education courses. And over the past couple of years, I've been kind of getting into some other new ventures like writing books and then uh, just recently launching my own podcast, all because, you know, my Dominican spirituality really is focused on what can I do to spread the faith and to make others aware of it and live it out. That's something I take very seriously. So I try to really live by that and let that influence my day-to-day -day work as best as I can. 
well, gee, you're not busy at all, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's first talk about the book you published last year, The Roman Catechism Explained for the Modern World. Please explain what this book is and why you wrote it. Yeah, so I actually wrote this originally as a series of articles for Catholic Family News. So if anybody is listening as a subscriber to Catholic Family News, you've probably read some of these over time. I started writing these, I think it was back in 2019, uh, when Matt Gaspers asked me to take the Catechism of the Council of Trent and explain that for today's Catholics, because the Catechism of the Council of Trent um, also called the Roman Catechism or the Catechism of St. Pius V has really fallen to a lot of disuse over the past uh, decades, especially even in America after the early 1900s when the Baltimore Catechism came out. The Baltimore Catechism is certainly very good for children, but the Roman Catechism was always the gold standard of catechisms. It was the most authoritative catechism ever written. It was called for by the Council of Trent and was put together under the authority of St. Charles Borromeo. Uh, the wisdom of that catechism is something I wanted more people to know about. So what I did is I tried to chapter by chapter explain the catechism with a twofold purpose. One, making people understand things about our faith that unfortunately are forgotten or people aren't taught anymore. That's a key focus of the different chapters. And two, applying the catechism to the modern errors affecting the world, errors that were not really in place at the time of uh, St. Pius V. So, for instance, communism, socialism, the rise of abortion, the rise of contraception, um, that those are things I talk about and apply the catechism to. And for the first point, I focus on forgotten things like the sin of usury that nobody talks about anymore, or how idolatries are actually the worst of the mortal sins and what the catechism actually talks about that. So it's really a twofold purpose to make that and bring that to light. There was a book written by Father Spirago in about, about a hundred years ago, The Catechism Explained. He basically did the same thing, taking the Catechism of the Council of Trent and explaining it to people to, of his time. I've sought to do the same thing for this century and applying it to the errors the modern Catholic is facing, like I said, for modernism, liberalism, and all the other isms affecting us today. So that's the purpose of the book. Okay, that, and boy, that's a thorough answer. Hey, you're a great interviewee. <laughs> so let's dig a little deeper on that. It's been my experience uh, that at least 95% of Catholics, and I'm being very generous here, have no earthly idea what the church teaches. They think mm -hmm. they do, but they don't. The Roman Catechism, more commonly called the Catechism of Trent, is the absolute most authoritative catechism the Catholic Church has ever produced, but it's very laborious to read. How does your book help modern Catholics to be able to benefit from the treasures found in the Roman Catechism? Let's let's dig a little deeper on what you've already said there. Right. So if you picked up a copy of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, it's a big book. It's a big volume. And some of the metaphors in it are a little antiquated. Um, there's things that maybe we just don't talk about today, especially if you read like St. Francis de Sales. He does a lot of metaphors with with birds and with animals that people nowadays would, wouldn't do. So some of the, the style of the writing is a little different. And also, it might be a little hard for somebody to just read through that. You often need it explained, and you need it explained for your situation and with a language uh, that you understand. So what I did chapter by chapter is there's large, you know, there's excerpts from the catechism 
throughout, but I augment that by the teaching of the Church Fathers, perhaps, or the Baltimore Catechism, or the Catechism of St. Pius X, or the Scriptures, or, or different other saintly writings. A number of different sources are used to try to make people understand this is, this is what we believe, and this is, again, explaining it in a different, in a different way. I do this and have done this for a long time at catechismclass.com because every one of my courses focuses on a number of different uh, ways to teach the faith using our time-tested seven-step format. But one thing that we do, for instance, say the topic is on purgatory, I want you to hear the church's teaching on purgatory from multiple catechisms because the one certain catechism might not resonate with you. The second catechism might resonate with you. It's a different way of explaining the same thing. Just like you can learn about World War II from different professors. It doesn't change history. You just you might understand the way somebody explained it a bit more. Catechisms are, are tools like that. Teaching the same thing, not contradicting each other, but one sort of way might resonate with you. And I've seen that, for instance, with purgatory, because in my online classes, for instance, there was a woman in her 80s who took my classes once. I still remember she sent us a letter afterwards thanking us, saying she learned so much, things that she never learned uh, as her whole life as a Catholic. And she said she actually understood purgatory much better than she ever had before because she heard about it from a from a catechism nobody reads anymore. And but just the way they explained it resonated with her. So I took that same philosophy into this book. How can we make available these perennial teachings of the faith, but explain that in different ways so hopefully something resonates with you, something sticks with you, so that way when you read this book, whether you're a catechumen or you're a catechist yourself, you're a lay Catholic, you're a priest, you're a deacon, doesn't matter who you are. I, I've had people from all those different classes buy the book and, and benefit from it already. I want you to go back and read it. And when you're done, say, I understand the faith a little bit better now. I will therefore live out the faith a little differently, and I will share what I learned with others. So that's how I break it down chapter by chapter. Yeah, you know, I keep telling Catholics, you, you know, my apostolate now is totally focused on Catholics. Obviously, I want to make converts when I can. And there have been a few converts we made through this show. But over the years in one-on-one and small group venues, I have been used by the Holy Spirit to make over 200 converts. And 84 of them are my adult godchildren. So I tell Catholics all the time, you can't practice what you don't know. And if your Catholic faith in practice isn't costing you something, you don't know the faith because it's <laughs> it's sacrificial love that we have to have. The same kind of love a, uh, a husband has for his wife and children, the same kind of love that uh, a mother has for her child. You know, it's, it's a sacrificial love. And, uh, and I like what you said about, you know, things being easy to read and expose them to different sources. Whenever I was still taking my instruction back in the late 80s, I accepted everything the church taught because by the time I uh, was finished with the ninth article of the creed, I was absolutely convinced that everything the church taught was absolutely true. But I had a problem with contraception. I couldn't understand the church's teaching against contraception. And it was through reading various sources 
that the light bulb finally turned on. And I said, oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really good to get that uh, varied exposure. And so far as language is concerned, look, Vaticanese, that's the name I give to it. When you read, say, for example, when I read the uh, documents of Vatican II, that's a yawner. That is a yawner. It, it's beautiful. There's lots of beautiful stuff in there, especially Lumen Gentium. But I had to read it two or three numbered paragraphs at a time. It took me several years because it's a yawner. Well, you know, I've also read the Catechism of Trent, the uh, uh, the Roman Catechism, and it's even more of a yawner. <laughs> so I love your approach to this. And regarding that 80-year-old woman you mentioned, she is an example of what's so sad. What I have taught all my catechetical life is everything, with the exception of the two heresies, uh, situation ethics and, uh, situation ethics and, gosh, I've, I'm going blank on the other one. Everything I teach is what Catholic eighth graders had to know to graduate Catholic school 70 years ago. And I have people all the time telling me that my webinars that I had to give up, they, you know, it's like getting a Catholic college education. And I'm saying, hey, this is eighth grade level stuff. Are you smarter than an eighth grader? You know, so I hear that same thing with my courses too all the time. People <laughs> like, this is too much. I'm like, this is, this is really basic, actually. Or I get sometimes people who who say they read something I, I've written and they say, that's not true because I didn't hear about that. I went to Catholic schools for 12 years. I had somebody say that once that Ember Days were never such a thing because if they were, she would have heard about it. And, <laughs> but, you know, that's that hubris. You know, I must have learned everything. It's unfortunate because a lot there's a tendency to water down the faith, very key and make it make it super easy. But then you take away all the mystery. I spend time every day studying. Just the other day, you know, I, I learned some interesting things that I never even learned, like every single day. And I, and I do this all the time. I learned about unique rubrics for if mass is said in front of a relic of the true cross, how the rubrics are to change how the priest celebrates. Cause that's the only rubric you, that's the only relic you genuflect, uh, in front of. So it was a very interesting thing I never heard about. So like I'm learning about new things all the time and they're just one example. So the notion that somebody could just complete confirmation or complete any number of grades and have learned everything is simply false. There's just so much there. You could spend a whole lifetime learning it. Yes. And you have an especially good apostolate that is very much need, uh, needed today. Because people just don't know the faith. And uh, I very much appreciate what you're doing. I kind of think God does, too. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I made it a practice from the very beginning. I never asked God to do uh, to bless what I am doing. Instead, I asked him to let me do what he's blessing. And that has kept me on the forefront of being able to evangelize. Matthew, I see that you have several endorsements for this book. The one that will carry the most weight with the Six-Pack Warriors is from Bishop Athanasius Snyder. 
now, I know from my own experience that when people write endorsements, they usually say a whole lot more than the blurb the public reads. I presume that you have that you've had at least one conversation with Bishop Schneider and that you've got written documentation from him. Can you tell us anything else he said about this book? Well, I have to thank uh, my publisher. My publisher is Our Lady of Victory Press. So um, they published uh, both of my recent books. The one we're talking about now is um, The Roman Catechism Explained from the Modern World. And they also recently published my definitive guide to Catholic fasting and absence, which I'm sure we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, but the, the publisher is actually the one who has, you know, reached out to, to Bishop Schneider for me and made that introduction. And also the one who introduced me to, to people like, uh, Mike Church, the, uh, another endorser too. And I was on his show actually just before Lent to promote fasting. But, uh, thanks to him, actually, uh, that's Timothy Flanders of Our Lady of Victory Press. He introduced me to Bishop Schneider and Bishop Schneider. I mean, as everybody would know, is quite a fan of the, of helping preserve and teach the faith, you know, at this Amen. time, he's one of those, uh, you know, I look at him very much like Cardinal Burke, uh, or like some of the other people out there really kind of fighting the faith, you know, Bishop Strickland does great work too in Texas. So there's, there's good bishops out there. Bishop uh, Schneider is one of them. So when he said, um, the only thing that he publicly wrote was, you know, the Roman catechism has been a trusted source of Catholic doctrine for centuries and that I've done a great service in transmitting this classic to the modern world. And I think sometimes saying less is a bit more because you could go on and you could say a lot, but that's really just what I wanted to do. I wanted to do this book. So as I said before, it was a series of articles for Catholic Family News and the project was completed and I was done. But I asked permission that if we could take those articles and I could go through the trouble and finding a publisher and putting it in a book because I didn't want it to simply be gone. Well, who's going to find random articles in Catholic Family News newspapers from 2019 to, for three different years and piece it together? I didn't want those that wisdom and that time I put into this to, to be gone. I wanted it to live on. So that's why we... Well, we, I, I approached, um, Our Lady of Victory Press. They agreed to do a paperback and a Kindle. Um, and, um, thankfully we, we were happy to get Bishop Schneider and other people too. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has also written, uh, an endorsement. Uh, he, it's not on the back cover, but he wrote one on Amazon. So if you read some of the reviews there, you'll read his there. So I'm happy to have people like that. People I look up to some of their work and I appreciate what they do, uh, like Bishop Schneider. And that it's really an indication that um, what I'm trying to do is ultimately to spread the faith. So uh, hopefully God, you know, like you said, continues to bless that work. Yeah, you, uh, you know, in getting to know these household Catholic names, you know, don't you feel kind of like a small fish in a big ocean? (laughs) (laughs) I know I certainly do. The, uh, I of course, most most of my friends from over the years are are dead now. I mean, you know, Terry Barber has been a good friend for many years, and Carl Keating, but a lot of the people are gone now. I'm becoming a has been. <laughs> well, Carl but, Keating, yeah, he's one of the first people that endorsed CatechismClass.com back in the day when our founder rolled it out. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. When uh, so our founder uh, of that program was Father James Adelava. Uh, he's a priest. He since died in 2018. But he was also of the opinion, uh, kind of like I am, too, don't put your name out there too much, do good work, and if people find right. you, they find you. But um, 
some people in, I feel, get too much into the publicity of they want their name on it. I just wanted good work to put out there, too. Father Zadalava did that, too. He just wanted as much as he could do to make sure people had access to what Catholics actually believe, because that's the problem. It's all about evangelization, learning yourself, teaching others. That was his vision, and that's what Carl Keating really, you know, uh, came to him and, and endorsed it and said what he was doing was really good, even though he didn't want to put his name out there. <laughs> yeah, and you know what you're talking about uh, getting your name out there is is really uh, uh, very true. When I decided to take the apostolate online, Cardinal Burke told me use a moniker, don't use your own name because I was going to have to use some kind of name to promote things. So I came up with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. There are very few people who know who I actually am. Uh, and Cardinal Burke incidentally seemed to be rather amused by that name. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's, it's, it's worked out. Matthew, let's shift gears here and get to the next book. Your newest book is titled The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Abstinence. I believe as I believe you pointed out, there's a growing trend among Catholics to return to the more traditional elements of the church's past. Personally, I think that's primarily because this pontificate has been such a dumpster fire. Francis is trying to suppress any and everything traditional, but his tyrannical acts have had the opposite effect on pew-sitting Catholics, thanks be to God. So one thing in the watered-down traditions in history has been the need to fast and abstain. In my own 35 years' experience of evangelizing souls, it long ago became apparent to me that people tend to embrace what they like and ignore what they don't like. Let's face it, nobody actually enjoys fasting. <laughs> so why did you bother to write this book? <laughs> that's a that's a good question. There's a lot can be said there, but one thing that immediately comes to mind is some of the inspiration comes from the rule of Saint Benedict, and one of his admonition to his monks was to love fasting, not to get by, not not to not to you know I, I get through it, uh, I like it a little, but to love it. And over time, I've I've really grown to love fasting. Um, of course, I, I can do it more, but it's actually a heaven-sent remedy. Um, so my book, uh, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Abstinence, is based on over three years of research I did. I wrote a number of articles on a acatholiclife.blogspot.com for the Fatima Center for 1 Peter 5 and all different aspects of fasting, and I wanted to tie that together into a book. And thankfully, I have two different friends, one of which speaks Spanish and one speaks Polish. So the book has already been translated into those languages as well, because I think Good. it's so important that we bring back this practice. It's been so forgotten. And as I talk about in the beginning of the book, our Lord himself gave us this remedy. He fasted for 40 days in the desert. And he did not have to. He had no sins to expiate. Obviously, he is God. But he did so as an example for people to follow. And um, I also talk about in the book, the first sin of mankind was the eating of a forbidden fruit. So people talk about pride being the first sin, which it is, but the church fathers say gluttony was the immediate second sin because they not only rebelled, but then they ate of it, they ate of what they should not. So fasting is really a remedy to to restore to man what he's been lost. And that's why I I believe Lent is one of the greatest blessings that we can have. It's one of the greatest things we can do. 
Pope Benedict XIV in the 1700s. He said Lent was the very badge of Christian honor, and by it we avert the wrath of God, and by it we show him that we are truly his friends. And if the church were ever to grow remiss in his observance of Lent, it would be to the detriment of God's glory and to the disgrace of the Catholic religion and to the collapse of society. And I really believe that the weakening of fasting and abstinence in Lent and around and around the church's calendar has ex- continued to exasperate the problem we're in today. And unfortunately, this is something I go over in the book. A lot of what I talk about, unfortunately, is just never taught. I've been teaching it to priests, actually, because some of which had to be translated into English. So some of it did not exist beforehand. Going over exceptions to exceptions, how did we go from a robust period in the early church where Lent was practiced as all vegan, that's not just vegetarian, but vegan, you cannot eat meat, you could not eat animal products, your one meal was only ever had after sunset, in imitation of Jewish tradition, you were not even allowed to have water unless it was at the meal. You were not allowed to have wine throughout all of Lent. You were not allowed to use oil. It was just a vegan meal with basically bread and herbs and vegetables and water at night, and it would be that same way until Easter. And that practice would continue even on Sundays, except no fasting, but the abstinence would remain. And unfortunately... That has been so watered down. We are at the situation we find ourselves in today where nobody wants to fast or everybody wants to exempt themselves. And what I'm trying to do, and I've been doing this very, very strongly for the past couple of years, is I want people to voluntarily commit to, not under pain of sin, but under devotion, to at least this year observe the 1917 Code of Canon Law on Fasting for Lent, which is much stricter, which is still much weaker, though, than it was in previous centuries. So the 1917 Code, I can talk about that a long time, about how it actually weakened things a bit, (laughs) but compared to now, it's so much more. So to rediscover fasting, to love it, is a divine remedy that Our Lady has asked for, that the saints have asked for, that our Lord himself has taught us. Uh, So I'll conclude that question by saying... Uh, I've recently formed a fellowship. It's called the Fellowship of St. Nicholas. If you go to onepeter5.com backslash fast, you can find information about it. But it's basically a group of people who want to commit to at least one of these tiers. And what this is, is people are voluntarily committing to observe these traditional fasting days, starting this Lent, but then throughout the year to different degrees, depending on your tier, and offering it up for the conversion of sinners, for the lapsed Catholics, for the restoration of tradition, um, for the, for our clergy too, especially that they be protected from demonic attacks and that they remain steadfast in the faith. All of those are some of our intentions. And if you, and at the bottom of that page is a link to our telegram group. We have a, right now almost 300 people in there that have voluntarily committed to this. So we support each other because when you're going from not fasting to I want to fast more like my forefathers did. How do I do it practically speaking? Cause it is hard. And some of these people are older too and they just, and they're exempt by their age, but they still want to live it out. So this is something that we can, we can help each other do. So I think it's vitally important to the life of the church to bring back fasting. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah. And, and six back warriors, I've got to tell you so that you have a better understanding. Whenever the church had such strict fasting, such as during Lent being totally vegan and only having water with your meal. We were an agrarian society worldwide. 
And so now you can understand because agrarianism is a very hard thing. It's, it's, it's very taxing on the human body. So now you can understand the origins of Mardi Gras. The church never had a Mardi Gras, but the people did. What did they do on Mardi Gras? They ate like pigs <laughs> to try to put on as much weight as they could for Lent so they could make it through Lent because Catholics obeyed the church in those days. <laughs> they actually obeyed. Matthew, many people, both within the church's hierarchy and the laity, believe we're inching closer to the final battle between heaven and hell. We see this in this dumpster fire pontificate, the criminal empire known as the USCCB, the rapid decline in social morality, and the political realm. Fasting has always been important because Jesus said so. But why is it so much more important today than it ever has been? That's a good question because right now fasting has been reduced to the most, to, to the least amount it ever has. I mean, I have plenty of people who think that fasting is really no longer a part of Catholic life when in fact Friday abstinence and fasting was really as integral to the faith as Sunday mass. So you, you didn't have one without the other. And we've really lost so much in recent times, relatively recent times. So something that people are really shocked by is I, I explained that Saturday abstinence was mandatory for a long time, not, not just Fridays, which I will say is still mandatory. Saturdays throughout the year were always days of absence unless it was a holy day of obligation. And that was the case in America until the early 1830s when uh, the Pope at the time granted a, a, you know, a dispensation from that for Americans. But if you look at the Dewey Catechism, that's one of those catechisms people don't know anymore. It was written in 1649. It talks about Fridays and Saturdays are days of abstinence. Fridays, because that's the day our Lord died, and Saturdays, because that was the day he lied dead in the tomb. So it would be inappropriate to have meat again until you've heard the resurrection on Sunday. So that's really interesting. We don't think about Saturday absence ever we don't think about we also you know violate too much the spirit of the law like it's during lent right now i do believe it's inappropriate to go out to nice fish fries and other things too of course it's good to do it as a community but i also don't eat fish during lent um and i and i don't uh and i don't do so because for over 700 years it was not allowed pope gregory uh saint gregory the great was the first one to allow fish to be had during lent it was too close to flesh meat so that was one of the first changes uh in, in time but shellfish wasn't allowed until about the 10th or the 11th century because that was considered too much of a delicacy so you had some things wa watered down um now you know people eat meat during lent but that really started in the middle 1700s beforehand there was no meat ever to be had during lent uh at all so that was such a big deal that's why you talked about mardi gras mardi gras was also known as carnival Carnival from the Latin words, you know, carnivale, the farewell to meat day. It's the last day you can have meat. But unfortunately, people took it to such an extent, it became so debaucherous that right. um, there was a votive feast instituted for of our Lord's holy face deformed in the passion to be said on Mardi Gras day. I think that, uh, and actually our Lord in an apparition in the 1930s asked for that. The Pope instituted that in some places. Nobody talks about that. Nobody also talks about the 40-hour devotion was originally started 
because it was to be said in the days leading up to Ash Wednesday in reparation for sins of Mardi Gras. So there's nothing wrong with celebrating before a great fast, but but again, it's not gluttonous, you know. And then it's important to also have the spirit of the fast. We've not only lost the actual doing of the fast, we've lost the spirit of the fast. So to and to go back to your question, when we lost the spirit of the fast, we lost the spirit of penance. Because Amen. fasting is one of the great means of penance. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about that. He talks about that's a way you actually can conquer the desires of the flesh. He talks about that's where you can actually lift your minds to contemplate heavenly things. And if you're not eating, you have more time for prayer. That's why the church enjoins us to do more prayer and almsgiving if we can at this time. You're not eating as much. You have time for that as well. But we've lost so much with penance. And actually, it happened the same time Our Lady of Fatima is asking for more penance. Our Lady of Lourdes is asking for penance. Our Lady of La Salette is asking for penance. And people basically are coming in these different groups in the church's history. I talk about this in the book and asking, oh, can I have a dispensation? I don't want to fast on this day. I don't want to abstain on this day. And there's a gradual weakening. And at the time, you would say, oh, this is for good reasons. You know, for instance, some of those changes that occurred under Pius XII fasting um, even before Vatican II, was done in response to World War II. And people were like, we got a war raging. We need, we need some exceptions. But the problem you find, if you look at the history of all of this, people latch on to those exceptions, and then they go with it, and then they expect it. And one and two generations, just like Saturday absence, you've long since forgotten that. So nobody's taught about fish wasn't allowed during Lent for a long time. So people go out, they have fish fries and everything now, but you've lost the spear. Remember, the spirit of penance has to do everything, offering it all up to God. That's part of what the fellowship is, keeping that that spirit very much alive and understanding this is like a marathon. Lent is a marathon for God. Um, the saints like Dom Guerin, well, not a saint, but Dom Guerin Jay talks about the writings of the saints, and he calls Lent God's hospital. This is the time for us to repair sins and fix our own souls, too. We, we've lost so much, especially when we compare ourselves to you know our ancestors. There was a a bishop who was a saint, he was from Spain, he was martyred in the 200s, and before, when he was on his way to execution, I talk about this in the book, this story, he's offered a glass of water to the final glass he can have before his execution, he's, he's off to be executed, and he famously spoke out against it, saying he would not drink water until he entered heaven, because it was not the hour to break the fast, and he would not break the fast for any reason. So now we have people nowadays who don't think it's a problem to overtly offend God and commit a mortal sin by eating meat on a Friday when this is a saint who's about to die, who would certainly be exempt from anything, to have a little water and openly refuses. That's the fervor of the past we have to rediscover in our own lives based on our own abilities. Yeah, you know, today's Catholics, the vast majority of even the 17% who claim to go to Mass every Sunday and Holy Day. Uh, can you imagine that? Only 17% go. But even among the majority of them, they don't pay attention to any Lenten penance. They don't abstain. They don't fast, mm-hmm. and uh, which I find really sad. And so there's something I want to add uh, for you six-pack warriors that Matthew touched on. Abstinence. If you fail to do abstinence on the Fridays of Lent, it is indeed a mortal sin. Uh, abstinence is actually mandatory throughout the year. 
and it, it's not under pain of mortal sin outside of Lent, but it's still mandatory. You have to live uh, abstinence throughout the year. And if you're not doing that, you're going to have a problem come judgment day. <laughs> yeah, if you're not, you got to go to confession for that. That is, we're talking about Fridays here. Fridays are still the day of mandatory penance around the year. You can do other days too, but we're talking on Fridays. If you're not, that needs to be brought up in confession. Yeah, if you go through the uh, the year, the majority of the year without abstaining, yeah, eventually it certainly builds up to even a mortal sin at some point. You know, it's an accumulative effect, but it's there. And folks, you've got to do it. You've got to. Uh, we can always, if, if you listeners don't agree with that, I'm sure Matthew would be happy to discuss it with you. And I would be happy to discuss it with you. But Matthew, you taught me something new here today. I didn't know anything about Saturday abstinence. Yeah, I, I actually, I've, I've given this book to some very committed Catholics and, um, nobody who's read it has said they've known it all. I mean, it was years of research. I've even researching how countries have differed. Like when did the Friday fast? So in the early church, Wednesdays and Fridays were days of fasting. And in addition to absence, when did that end? And in my research, Wednesday abstinence ended around the 10th or the 11th century. But some places like Ireland kept it to the 1700s. Some other places kept Friday fasting also much later. So so I wanted to understand, how do we go from the fervor of the apostles to, because we believe the apostles started Lent. They instituted the Lenten fast. Originally, it was for catechumens. Very early on, others wanted to join the fast. So they, so they did so in, in solidarity. It very quickly became a period of time leading up to Easter. A holy week, it was originally the fast, but it very quickly, like I said, it became other days. Holy week for a long time actually had its own kind of rigor. So in a, the kind of fasting that I try to promote to people to voluntarily do is based a lot on what St. Thomas Aquinas observed at his time. And that was on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, you eat nothing absolutely nothing, if you can, to go 40 hours, uh, because Christ was dead in the tomb for 40 hours. So if you can do that and offer up, and that, and that, and that's a hard one. But then Holy Week itself was only bread and herbs and water. That was all you would eat. So, I mean, you're talking about serious penance here, too. So um, that we, we, we lost that, too. We've lost uh, so much of our, our history. There's even some interesting things, like for instance, when Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, the same one who encouraged us, you know, calling Lent the badge of Christian honor, he was the one who acquiesced to demands at his time. Kind of, he kind of privately lamented. He felt like he couldn't do anything other than say yes. But he was the one who gave and allowed meat to be had during Lent. And that's when pro, uh, when partial absence started on some days, where you don't have meat at your, your snacks. They're not, they're not actually called two small meals. The, the one in the morning is called a frustulum. The one in the evening is called a collation, technically. So you, you don't have meat at those, but you have meat at the main ones some days of Lent. But, but he actually, very interestingly, and I don't know anybody else who talks about this. I found it in a, a lot of historical research was he forbade you to eat fish and meat at the same meal on the day of partial absence that he created. Why? I don't know. He felt like it would be too much of a luxury. So you have all these interesting things. Also, when could you have your meal? There were different rules for priests and clerics who say the divine office, you would have to say vespers before you have your meal. 
So they would actually move up Vespers till around noon, uh, 12 o'clock. That's actually why we call 12 o'clock noon. It has to do with they're changing the canonical hours and that turn during fasting days, you would have that around time. So some of the, you know, verbiage that we talk about now, we take for granted. Why do we call 12 noon? It's entirely based around fasting, cat, traditional Catholic. So overall, it just, we've lost, you know, so much. And part of the research that I find really interesting is just trying to understand why and what. And if anybody is, is just, if you don't have a copy of the book, I would definitely highly encourage people to get the definitive guide to Catholic fasting and absence. It's really three years worth of work that I put together. But if you go to a catholiclife.blogspot.com, I have many articles on fasting. If you scroll down, I talk about them. And one of my recent articles is a table and it shows how Lenten, the Lenten observance changed over time by the centuries. How, for instance, the size of your snacks could change or what could you eat or was the character of the food or what beverages was allowed. It's really interesting because you go from very strict and you see things starting to really weaken to get where we are now. So it didn't happen overnight. There was unlike changes in the mass and other things, which really will run off a cliff very clearly and definitively in the mid 1900s. Changes to fasting have been going on for hundreds of years. And unfortunately, that weakening of devotion has has led us to a problem now where people no longer do penance. And we have this whole debt of sin that has to be paid to God. And people don't want to do the penance to, to pay that debt. But but God has been offended, and we have to bear the debt of each other, not only for your own sins, but those of the world and others. So we can do so by doing more penance like fasting and absence during Lent and throughout the year. Hey, folks, now that you've listened to what Matthew had to say, if you think that you're really giving up things for the church, you're really uh, living the Catholic life is sacrificial, you might want to rethink your position. <laughs> Matthew, Jesus tells us to do everything he commanded us. So do you believe that Catholics can expect to have a reasonable hope of salvation if they don't fast? Our Lord has said, it was in the, in the Gospel of Luke, that unless you do penance, you shall perish. And our Lord himself taught us that Prayer and fasting were integral to the life. He taught the apostles that some demons are only driven out by prayer and fasting. And our Lord himself, perfect God and man, fasted. If God can fast and go hungry and subject himself to temptation by the devil, I think it would be false for anybody on earth to assume that he could be saved without doing penance, of which fasting is chief among them. We have Moses as an example. We have Elijah as an example. We have St. John the Baptist. We have all the saints. One of the reasons I chose St. Nicholas as the patron of our fellowship to promote traditional fasting is you think about him as a great charitable guy. You know, he, he gives gifts to kids. He comes around Christmas. He's he's happy and he's jolly. He's also orthodox, though. He might punch an Aryan in the face, you know, so he's really strict. So uh, that's good. But nobody talks about the fasting he did. In fact, the Roman uh, breviary, the traditional one readings for him, talk about he fasted every Wednesday and Friday from for his whole life, from his very infancy, that he would not have um, he would not be nursed by his mother on Wednesdays and Fridays. So from the very instant he was born, it was he's observed fasting with that kind of strictness. So the saints teaches that. I also think about Saint John of the Cross. I wrote about him before. So the monastic fast is a tradition that some monks do where they basically start the Lenten fast in September. 
and they do that, um, and they continue that into the Advent fast, uh, a fast I encourage people to do the 40 days leading up to Christmas called St. Martin's Lent. Uh, it was kept as uh, obligatory in some places, and my book goes into that fast in more detail too, but the monastic fast starts then and it ends on Easter. St. John of the Cross is one of the people who promoted that and promoted a return uh, for the Carmelites to a very traditional primitive discipline. And he did that with St. Teresa of Avila. And for that, most of the Carmelites at the time hated them. Like if you were living in the church then, those were bad names. You didn't want to be associated with them. There was a lot of stigma associated with them. So much so John of the Cross was literally imprisoned by his order. Originally, he uh he would just be like, no, I'm going to observe the older rule, which is no meat at all. And they wouldn't cook anything special for him, so they would let him starve. But eventually he starts doing this. God blesses his work. It spreads. They His order imprisons him and tortures him, beats him, take his missile away, his bravery. He can't say mass. He's in prison for over a year until Our Lady appears to him and rescues him from prison in a, in a miracle. And thus he escapes. So, And he did that. Why? Not to observe voluntarily the primitive traditional order of fasting. So we have saints that are showing us that it's okay to say the norms of this time, uh, I want to go farther. I want to bring back more primitive discipline. I want to help people do more penance. This was, you know, several hundred years ago when the discipline at that time was much harder than now. He wanted to bring back an even older discipline. So with him and the saints as our example, we can see that there's much that we can do, but I don't think you can be saved without fasting, assuming, of course, that you can fast. So if somebody quite legitimately is physically unable to fast, that that would be an exception. But I would say most people can fast at least a little. So uh, that's something I, I talk about, too, who's exempt from fasting or not, even if you're exempt because you're sick. Uh, or you're pregnant or you're nursing or you're, you're outside the ages of fasting or you have true medical needs. There might be times in which you might be able to fast a little bit, but you can certainly abstain because the church traditionally might exempt you from fasting, but there is no exemption from abstinence. So some people confuse that. So you might say, uh, you know, I'm a manual worker. You were exempt or, or you have cancer. You're exempt from fasting. You're not exempt from abstinence because meat is never medically necessary. So that's something I also make people aware. And actually, this is interesting, too. St. Thomas Aquinas taught at his time, um, the age of fasting isn't what it is now. In fact, it was 21 for a long time until recently it was brought down to 18 uh, uh, in the 60s. Um, actually, no, that might have been the 1983 code brought it down to 18. Uh, but St. Thomas Aquinas at his time said the age of fasting was 10. And he actually even said that children younger that might be obligated to fast even though they don't have the age but you know if they're of a certain mindset and of a certain health and if you can sin you can probably fast so he was actually of the opinion that a parent should make a determination to do so with your children so thus even if your children aren't obliged under fasting or absence because they kick in at different times you might voluntarily have them observe it to prepare in unit in solidarity with others in solidarity with the church and with penance because if um if you're old enough to sin, you're probably old enough to do penance. Amen. And look at the ch- look at the children of Fatima too. They were young, and they were key proponents of penance. So of course, it's always in moderation too, especially at that age too. So think about it with with your children too. And but nothing wrong with absence. Thank you, Matthew. I <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, but you touched on something that I want to comment on because six pack warriors need to hear and understand this. 
I've talked about it before, but I don't think it caught on for a lot of you. During Advent, that's a penitential season, not a party season. I have always discouraged people from going to Christmas parties, even at work during Advent, because it is penitential. Christmas for Protestants and the secular world, those who celebrate it, begins right after Thanksgiving. But Christmas for Catholics doesn't begin. Begin December 25th. And we celebrate Christmas, what, eight days, right? Isn't that right? No, 12 days. 12 days of Christmas. Yeah, 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 12. I was being dumb as a bag of hammers there. So you need to understand penance in December, not party. You want to do your Christmas shopping? Do it in November or do it for next year in January. You don't need to be going Christmas shopping in December because that is kind of a party element. You know, you need to be doing penance. I'm sorry, Matthew. I didn't mean to take it over there. No, it's good. It's good to mention that. Yeah, and listen, buddy, you've taught me several things here. I think the most significant thing was... uh abstinence on Saturday. Well, you're a man after my own heart. You want to share the truths of the Catholic faith, the entire 2,000-year teaching, constant teaching, with everyone. And that makes you and your apostolate special. And everything you do is an apostolate. Six-pack warriors, I'm constantly talking about a Catholic has to be doing something. And every something you do is an apostolate. And so uh, everybody needs to get involved. In fact, folks who uh, uh, are listening to this interview, if you listen to uh, the previous episode, it's all about Catholics doing something. If if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it, because uh, the people we interview on that have some very good suggestions for you. And I want to tell you, doing apostolate is a penance. It is a penance. You know, I have never, in the entire 35 years I've been doing this, I have never wanted to teach the catechism. I dread it every time I have to. Yet the only time I'm truly happy is when I do. (laughs) So, A priest told me one time that was an excellent uh, example of why it's a vocation. So, (laughs) Matthew, this interview has gone much longer than I expected. Uh, I'm not complaining. I love every bit of it. We're going to have to cut it off. So I thank you very much for being on the Cantankerous Catholic today. Would you consider coming back again? I would. Would you have me? Yeah, I I would love to. In fact, we're going to talk about something after the interview. Six-Pack Warriors, go to the episodes page of cantankerouscatholic.com. Click on the title for this episode so you can see my show notes beneath the podcast player. Uh, In the show notes, you'll see links for both of Matthew's books and catechismclass.com. I strongly urge you to get and read both of these books, and I think you should go to catechismclass.com to see the very extensive, and I mean they are extensive, 
offerings for Catholic education Matthew has there. Matthew, thank you so very much for being on, and we will talk again soon. God bless you, buddy. God bless. Thank you. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts, and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, He usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for Him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the Lay Evangelist Handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. I explain the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. Then I get to the step-by-step process for sharing the faith. I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Hello, Six-Pack Warriors. We once again have Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas with us. How are you today, Bishop? Good, Joe. How are you? Oh, I'm, you know, just thrilled to be, you know, I get a real kick out of doing these. I just enjoy spending this time with you. This week, Peter asks a question about Lent, and a spoiler alert, Peter happens to be my best friend here, so. Lent's coming up, so what to give up for 40 days? I'm reading Cardinal Sarah's The Day Is Now Far Spent, wherein he talks about the chaotic diversity of media messages and images that drive out awareness of God. He recommends that we try a great media fast, complete abstinence of screens for 40 days. That would be tough for a news junkie like me and me. What does your excellency think of the Cardinal's suggestion? Well, I think it, it we certainly need to take it seriously and uh, maybe not a total fast, but really 
for Lent and and really for always to be more discerning. And I, I speak to myself more discerning about using whatever screens, whether it's the computer screen, the television screen, the screen on the phone. There, we're surrounded by them. Um, many people have to earn a living using these things. So, you know, a, a total fast is probably, and I guess I would encourage people, I think there's great wisdom in what Cardinal Sarah has has encouraged. Um, and we need to take it to heart and really ask ourselves, how can I do this? How can I embrace that kind of attitude? Maybe not totally, but spending more time just reading a book or praying before the Lord or going for a walk or talking to a friend. I mean, there are a lot of things that tend to get diminished by so much screen time. And I think that's what his eminence is getting at. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you, but I'm also like uh, Peter in that I'm a news junkie. Uh, especially political news. And, of course, for me, a part of this uh, this podcast is dealing with the uh, news. And uh, I've decided that instead of uh, the main topic of the podcast, the first segment, instead of having it all things Catholic, I want to start talking about politics more from a Catholic perspective. And the reason for that is, number one, we have the Sacred Heart Wins with you in one segment, and then I have the Catholic Boot Camp in another segment. So I figure they're getting lots of teaching about the faith, but I get the feeling from the comments that I get, they want to hear more about politics too. And really, Michael Voris makes a tremendous point about this, Catholicism in our modern world and politics are inseparable. All of the Catholic Church today deals with politics and politics deals with us. So, you know, that's a wonderful point. I'm sorry, uh, Cardinal Sarah, I'm probably not going to be able to do this for my Lenten penance. (laughs) So do you have anything to add to this, Excellency? No, just I think we've said that it is something to be considered and seriously, um, but everyone has to, just like with any penance, I mean, there, there are certain things that have to be considered to, to make keep it healthy and to keep it focused on drawing us closer to the Lord and living his life and light more fully. So the the ways that staying away from screens or at least limiting or maybe sectioning it off some way. I think everyone needs to consider it. Okay. Very good. Excellency. You have done a stand up job as always. I want to thank you for being here this week and we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Joe. This has been the cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It. 